heard this phrase, Zoom fatigue. There's no such thing as Zoom fatigue. It's called shitty meeting fatigue. It's called shitty facilitation fatigue. That's what it is. Zoom is not the problem. It's guiding people in a way that keeps them captive, engaged, having a good time, and having a learning full time. There's these three sources of value. That model is called our 3C model, content connection community. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the whole world has been moved into more online meetings and events. But one thing that remains is the need for connection and community in our workplace and other circles. John Berghoff is an expert in bringing high-value content through engaging online and live gatherings, creating deep connection and building community in the process. In this new Zoom era, these abilities are paramount for anyone who leads groups. This conversation covers John's 3C model for content, connection, and community, as well as other keys for running great online events and John's view on the future of work in terms of how we gather. I know you'll enjoy this informative episode with the brilliant John Berghoff. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. John, it's so great to see you and be with you here in this way today. Welcome. Dan, it's good to be back, man. It's so great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. I'm not sure if I've had anybody for three separate podcast episodes. You may be the first guy doing a third time appearance as a solo third time appearance. Uh, well, that, that means a lot. I don't take that lightly. And you must have missed me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> as always, as always. For our audience, John Berghoff runs Exchange. He's the CEO and founder. And Exchange is the premier organization for facilitating events and for teaching others how to do so. And of course, John, prior to 2020, Virtually all of your work was in person. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about how your business has evolved since the pandemic unfolded. Mm, well, I mean, in some ways, like every other entrepreneur or many entrepreneurs can probably relate, we were forced to evolve really quickly and to innovate. And in our space, that meant you know, the obvious thing it meant was can we do what we used to do in person? 
training coaches and leaders and teachers how to facilitate group experiences. Can we do that online? And as you are aware, you know, last year we had about 120 people that were scheduled to come to Cleveland in April. I think you were one of those. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and then, you know, whatever it was a few weeks before that, we all of a sudden realize we have to figure out if teaching facilitators how to facilitate group experiences works online. And we didn't really know what would happen. And, you know, the short answer is it worked. And the longer answer is we never would have thought it worked as well as it has. (laughs) And, you know, on that journey since then, it's not just that we've learned a lot about facilitating online in large part one of the reasons why a lot of our work worked online had nothing to do with doing things online it just had to do with understanding group dynamics and and realizing there's tech tools that can make a lot of those things still possible and then i think the other thing that evolved is just how much we learned about human behavior and group dynamics because you know, part of the result of us navigating through the last year is how many people we met <laughs> We introduced our method to, I think the count is above 8,000 people via live experiential introductory workshops that I personally led. Now others lead those as well. Uh, we, we still do those every month. And then we had, I don't know, like five or 600 people come through our three-day immersion training from nearly 30 countries. And uh, so just the amount that we've gotten to learn just by being connected to so many people that I think if we would have kept doing things in person, I don't know if we would have met that many people. So it's been a gift. It's incredible. So just like all of us in Cutco Vector, John, you went from, oh, shit, to, oh, shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, awesome. So, so cool to hear What have you found to be the benefits of virtual trainings and events? I think one of them is the the access that we have. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like we had this access before the pandemic got here, but out of necessity and being forced to innovate how we did business, we evolved into an approach that was so much more accessible. You know, like it's a link away. Like before you and I were on this call, I was on another Zoom call helping a, a foundation design a strategic planning retreat. And, and one hour before that, we're talking to the head of women presidents organization, helping to design their 700 person conference coming up. And, and, and of course, we could have done all of this before the pandemic got here, but it's just been fascinating how what the last year has taught us is how much we can accomplish just with one click of a link bringing together so many extraordinary people. So that that's one benefit that I, I know is you know, stating the obvious maybe. Another obvious benefit is the economics. The economics of being able to create value without the the cost involved of getting on planes and renting hotels and all the other things with that not that there isn't a loss to not being able to be together in person. And that's a whole conversation to have, but there's an economic benefit to be able to create value this way. So, I mean, those are, those are a couple of the benefits and I'll go back to the same one I said a minute ago, which is for us. And I I can't speak for every other business or type of business, but for us, we've just, by being in contact with so many diverse people for the last year, 
we have learned so much. I have learned so much about people and about myself in the world that that's the benefit that kind of transcends them all for me personally. Yeah. I love it, John. Definitely what you said mirrors the benefits that we have found for the Cutco Vector Marketing Organization and that the idea of access, a new rep now has access directly to their division manager easily and quickly through training. They have access to our very best trainers. Our very best trainers throughout the company can be training people in their own yeah. you know, organization. And it's a link away, right? Yeah. Uh, as you said. And then being able to gather people for bigger events without the cost barrier of, you know, running a live conference and getting a, a, you know, hotel space and rooms and things like that, food, all of that stuff, you know, has provided an opportunity for us to be able to have a greater reach in that way as well. So there, it's really interesting, the benefits that exist that already were there before, but that through being forced to innovate, we've been able to really discover these benefits in a way that is, you know, convinced us that uh, a lot of what we're doing is a great way to operate. Yeah. Yeah. What about the other side of the coin? Have there been challenges you've experienced? Mm, yeah, certainly. I think, you know, the interesting thing is that the biggest challenge for us is not necessarily around, can we teach facilitation methods online and can we grow that business? That that part has all worked out very nicely for us and it continues to. The biggest challenge has been, and I think this is probably something a lot of us can relate to, that as great as this all sounds, how things have worked out for us, and I know for you and many other businesses who have had the privilege of, of being in a business where they were able to figure things out. Not everybody's had that privilege and I, I never lose sight of that. But one challenge is you go back to that second, third week of March last year. Do you remember where you were? Like, I, I remember, I remember the day where it's like, wait a minute, schools are closed. You can't fly anywhere. Everybody remembers that, right? Absolutely. I, I think the biggest challenge that I personally have faced in the last year has been that we're sitting here on one hand, trying to be really creative and innovative, right? Like, you know, we had to, we had to reinvent, we had to, totally redesign our business, our business model, how we create value. And yet we're trying to do that at a moment where we're facing a tr more stress than I've ever faced in my life. And the, the interesting thing that the irony to all this is in the last year, inside of our own work, through work we've done with members of our community, we've actually learned a lot about the neuroscience of navigating stress. Dr. Daniel Friedland who's done extraordinary work on neuroscience and mindfulness and how those help us to be more conscious leaders. He's a coach to CEOs across the whole conscious capitalism movement. And he's become a good friend of ours and a member of our faculty at Exchange. And what we learned from him over the last year actually helped us to understand what it was we were dealing with that was our greatest challenge. And what, part of what we learned from him is when, when the demands that we are facing in our lives exceed the feeling that we have the resources to meet those demands, right? Which is I'm sure as soon as I say that, I don't need to say much more. And a lot of people can relate to that moments, experiences where we're facing something we don't have an answer to an insurmountable challenge. We don't have a playbook or a precedent. Well, that was the whole world last year. So our greatest challenge is we've learned by working with Danny, we now teach his work, which is its own blessing and privilege is that in those moments, we just 
we become reactive. We shut down. And so that was my greatest challenge is shutting down the parts of my being and getting really reactive because I was under more stress than I've ever been under. And then having to figure out how to manage my own inner game to flip the switch, to tap into that creative, resilient, intuitive, connected, compassionate place, which is where all the all the important things needed to come from. So that's been the greatest journey. And I would be absolutely off base if I didn't say that that today is still what I believe my greatest opportunity is, is not just all the good we're doing out there, but how do I keep tuning that inner part of me so that we can keep creating an upward spiral in our business? So yeah, well, answer to a, a good question, I guess. John, I might say that you have spent prior to the pandemic 20 years tuning your inner game and developing the resource of your own self, your own skills, your own mentality, your own work ethic, all of the things that you have within you, you spent 20 years developing so that the idea of, you know, we experience stress when the demands exceed our resources, like the resources within you are so abundant that it's very difficult to think of almost any challenge where your resources will not exceed your demands. And for anyone who's developing themselves on a regular basis, I think that's the case. And that's, I think, why Cutco Vector came through the pandemic fairly well, because there's so many people in our company that have worked on their skills and their game and their mindset and all of those things for so long that we were mentally prepared to take on the challenge. Yeah. And I don't remember what you and I talked about in our first episode together on this podcast, but I'm guessing even back then, pre-pandemic, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I appreciated the lessons that you and Vector taught me. And what's interesting is for the exact reasons that you just shared, my appreciation for what you just said, for what you and Vector taught me is even greater today than it was a year ago, because even if I am someone who has been committed to development for decades, like you said, and I have been, I mean, what last year taught me is there is no end. <laughs> you don't graduate from this one. Like there, you don't Boom. have it figured out. I had challenges last year and still today that you cannot be too prepared for. And so thank you to you and Vector for giving me those gifts and planting those seeds, you know, as a young man trying to figure out how do I talk someone into letting me show them these knives and having a few people say no before someone says yes. I did not realize that was building the inner capacity to do it today, I think is the most important skill. I could, I could tell you, I, I had meetings yesterday with an executive where they're asking us about our training on what's called awakening conscious leadership. That sounds fancy. It's really just what we learned selling knives, right? And all I had to say was, this is the neuroscience of navigating moments of stress to convert that into finding the resources within. And it's like the sale is made before I can finish that sentence. And yeah, that's what I learned selling knives. So even more appreciated today after a year of being put to the test. Awesome. Well, you certainly have given back many times over to the Cutco Vector community. And in particular, I feel like I've learned as much from you in the last few years as from anyone else in my life about what we're talking about today, facilitating events, 
creating engagement, creating connection, building a community. Let's dive into some of the how-to of this stuff, John. And um, as it pertains to running events virtually, start out with the idea of how do you create engagement in Mm -hmm. a virtual event? Yeah, well, that question is, it's like the crux of everything we're interested in. How do you create engagement? And when you say virtual event, you know, we could create a little definition here. I think the kinds of virtual events that you and I are really interested in are often spaces where we're coming together because people are coming together to learn something, to share knowledge so that they can take that learning and do something with it. We call these learning environments, trainings, workshops, team meetings, seminars, conferences. You know, there's it's a big category. But one of the things that we've noticed about these learning environments is there's different types of value that we can create when we bring a group together. And some of these kind of sources of value are more obvious than others. And then how to deliver on these sources of value. Sometimes it's obvious, but oftentimes it's not. And that this is all at the center of, as you know, what we're interested in. And just to kind of unpack that, you know, someone comes into a a learning environment and this is all true in person or online, but they come into a learning environment Oftentimes it's because the most obvious reason is I want to learn something. We call that intellectual capital. They want some information so that they can do something, achieve something, overcome an obstacle, have a better future, right? That's obvious. Another reason somebody might come to a learning environment, this might not be the most common reason initially, but it's often a reason later on, is they want to build something called social capital. I want to connect with other people like me. Right? I want to come to this conference, not just to learn, but I want to meet others who are facing the same challenges on the same journey, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Those two sources of value are capital, as we say, intellectual, social capital. Those are the two most obvious reasons people often show up. Now, there's a third source of capital, and we've learned so much about this over the last year just by witnessing it. And it's rarely why somebody shows up. It's often why they will want to keep coming back. And it's not just the information. It's not, am I going to connect with somebody else? It's what we call communal capital, which is different than social capital. And we've been very fortunate that we have advisors and partners who are scientists who study this stuff and we try to learn everything we can from them. And communal capital is, it's not only do I feel like I belong here, which by the way, there's a strong argument that that's something that people need very deeply, even if it's not why they come to my training It's like a biological need that people need in the world right now more than ever before. But it's also, what is it that I'm belonging to? What are these people up to, right? So it's it's different dimensions of belonging. Hmm. You can have social capital. I could connect with you and love connecting with you, but not feel connected to the bigger group or like I'm really a part of this bigger group. So there's these three sources of value. And your original question was, how do you create engagement in our all of our frameworks and our models and tools that we've built at Exchange, and we've been building these since before the pandemic, but it's been amazing how well they work online, are all based around actually three questions. Number one, how do we move a learning experience from passive to active as much as possible? Right? Because that's one answer to engagement. Like, how, how do you make this an active experience? And granted, there are a lot of situations where it's not going to be active for moments of time. In fact, someone listening to this right now, that's a passive learning experience. And that's fine. We can own that. But when you bring people together live, if we don't know how to move it from passive to active, we're ignoring one of the very few things that all the science on how people learn agrees upon, which is we actually don't learn best 
by just listening, watching, reading, or hearing, right? We, we learn best when we start to do certain things, right? And it's not just taking notes, but it's actually sharing out loud, even with others and often in small groups and having discussions. It's those moments where learning goes from passive to active. So that's one answer to how do you make it engaging? And there's another question we ask, which is how do we move the teaching so that the teaching is not just coming from one expert, one teacher, and we're not getting rid of that teacher, but how do we also tap into the wisdom and the learning that sits there inside of the participants as well? So, you know, I, obviously I know you work in, with sales organizations with Vector and Cutco and, you know, we have facilitators we've trained that are leading sales conferences all over the world. And I know you're doing variations of this as well. We've probably learned some of this from you after you've been doing this, but, you know, bring in a group of people who've been out in the field and not just having one or two people tell everybody else what's going on, but have them get in small groups and share with each other. Here's the best sale I made. Here's the best prospecting move I made. Here's the best close or my best strategy. And that we call that crowdsourcing which is really just an answer to the question, how do you from time to time in, in thoughtful ways turn the audience into the teachers? Which, by the way, is also moving the learning from passive to active, and it's highly engaging by every definition of engagement. Mm-hmm. There's a third question we ask, which is starts to get a little bit more abstract, but is very important, which is when you bring people together, how do you not just make this about serving them as individuals, but make it about building a sense of community? Because what we've noticed is even though that can sound or feel abstract or fuzzy, but we we also have all been in organizations, teams, cultures, groups where even if you can't name it or explain it, you can feel it. Like we've got a chemistry, we belong, we connect. We all feel like we can be ourselves here. And creating that is really important too, even though that might not feel like that's about engagement. But and, and there's one thing I haven't said, Dan, which may have been what you were looking for. There's all sorts of tactical you know, small little things when you bring people online and in a room in person to make it more engaging. But the reason why I wanted to start by unpacking that model, that model is called our 3C model, content connection community. The reason I start with that model is because there are a lot of tactical things we can do to engage people, techniques in facilitation. But behind all that, we have to have thoughtful models that really invite our whole selves, our deeper intellect, our curiosity in ways that connect us to the learning, to each other, and to the bigger purpose of why we're here. So let me stop. And then wherever you want to go with all that, it's kind of a Mm. lot that I put out there. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love the idea of the three C model, right? Content, connection, and community. And so as somebody is thinking about the content that they want to bring to their audience, what they want to be teaching the audience, thinking about how to flip that from passive to active. And then connection, right, is tapping into the wisdom of the participants and having them sharing with each other, right? Community is a much deeper and more complex one that we could perhaps get into a little bit later on today. But let's circle back to just the content part about transforming learning from passive to active. What are a couple of the key ways that you like to do that? Yeah. So there's some embarrassingly simple ways, and that's good news, right? And the beautiful thing is these are based on really rock solid science, not research we've done, 
but us doing research on evidence-based approaches to learning. Here's a simple way to do it. And let me give you a real world example. So let's see, two days ago, a dear mentor of mine, his name is Joseph Jaworski. He's 86 years old and he's written a number of books and he's lived a legendary life. And he came into our community at Exchange and I got to interview Joseph on his life's work. And his life's work is around uh, understanding something called synchronicity and also understanding how to tap into the deeper wisdom within ourselves, deep stuff. And Joseph is so extraordinary at teaching it. Well, you could think about his teachings that I drew out in the interview as the content, right? It's the information that people came there to get, so to speak, right? That makes perfect sense, right? Someone's running a Cutco training. I've got to explain to you the features of this knife, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the content. But what we do here at Exchange is we take all learning experiences and we design a certain sequencing so that wrapped around that passive information are a sequence of interactions. And this sequence, here it is. It's real simple. Before I interviewed Joseph, and remember his topic was on connecting to deeper wisdom, right? So what we did is we actually opened up by giving the audience a question. And the question was, when was the time in your life that you felt connected to a deeper wisdom? That question works really well for that type of topic. We gave them the question and then listen, there's about a three or four step sequence within this one step that creates an active experience. It turns everybody into a teacher and it builds community all at the same time. That's the part that's mind blowing. So before I interview Joseph and he teaches his content, I present to the whole audience the question, when have you connected to a deeper sense of knowing? That's the thing he's about to teach. And I'll give you different versions of questions that would work in different settings. We let them reflect on that question, literally give them a minute to think. That right there reveals one of the the biggest non-obvious mistakes that we make in learning environments is not giving people a chance to pause and to reflect. It's so tempting to think we got a lot to cover. We got to keep moving. So I'm going to teach and then they're going to work or they're going to react to it or ask questions. People need times to reflect. And so here's the question. When have you connected to a deeper learning experience? Everybody reflects. Then we put them in small groups and they all share those stories with each other. And they all have like a minute to share a quick story. And if they get through that and they're still in that small group, they go back around their little circle. This is all happening in Zoom breakout rooms. And they study their stories. They say, what could we learn from each other's stories? And they come out of those small groups to the large group. And then we call on three or four or five people from the smaller groups to share their stories. And that whole opening sequence of ask them that question, let them reflect, then bring them into small groups for about six to 10 minutes, then bring them out, have a few people share. We call that an active learning cycle. I haven't started interviewing Joseph yet, but now I get to interviewing him and I will tell you, Everything that he delivers from that point forward, the entire audience is more present. They're more engaged. All their cameras are on. In our world, they had to be anyways. But everyone is deeply present because of that opening activity, which that's half the battle in a learning environment. Are people there or are they doing other things? Well, when you have them reflect and talk to each other in small groups, you pull them into the present. The other thing is they actually now believe in the very thing they're there to be taught a little more deeply because they just reconnected to a time in their life when they've seen it. Is this confusing Mm. or making sense? It's great. So Joseph now teaches, and by the way, he's able to, in real time, 
make small adjustments to his teaching because he got to hear their voices first around the topic at hand. And then when we get to the end of the interview, we go back to an active learning cycle. In this case, it was, what's the greatest gift Joseph gave you today? Which is a a variation on what's the biggest lesson you learned? Because frankly, that's what they're going to lean into. But by using the word gift, it adds an emotional tone to the whole conversation. So that whole thing happened in 90 minutes. There's an opening connection activity he teaches, and then there's a closing connection activity. Now, you can shorten that. That whole thing could be 30 minutes or 20 or an hour. Right. Um, And the big lesson is make it active before and after you do something that's passive. I'm just envisioning like for a Cutco Vector manager running a team meeting, and they want to teach their reps about how to get better at connecting with your customer and building rapport. They could literally pose the question of, you know, think of a time that you really connected well with someone the first time you met them. Mm. Yeah. Right. What happened? What'd you learn from it? Yeah. And they could reflect and then they could go into groups of four and it doesn't have to be connecting on a cut code demo. It could be some other experience where you met somebody the first time and you deeply connected. And then there could be some share outs after that. And then your speaker comes up and says, you know, here's your X, Y, Z, how to connect with customers on your cut code demos. It's more meaningful to the audience because they've been through this, you know, learning cycle, active learning cycle. And then at the end, right, right. What was the greatest gift you got from this message today, from this section today? And boom, right. People will internalize the learning at a much, much higher level than if you just had a speaker come out and talk to the group for 15 or 30 minutes, right? And you know what's cool is if you led the exact activity that you just described, you ask a group of reps, when was a time in your life or a person from your life anywhere? Exactly. It doesn't matter if it was from a Cutco demo where you saw someone who was phenomenal at connecting, building rapport, however you want to frame that question, right? The way you did it could be just great. If they go into that small group and they share those stories and you give them a step two inside that group, which is after you hear the stories, what are the success factors that enabled that person to be great at connecting? Mm. When they come out of those small groups, if you ask a handful of people to share, hey, what kind of success factors do you identify in your group? We know right now what they're going to say. They're going to say, you know, those individuals were great at listening. They were great at making you feel like you were the only one in the conversation. They were great at asking questions. And you know what the beautiful thing is? Whatever your teacher is about to teach is probably how to do those very things. Exactly. So yeah, that's, and from a science, from a scientific standpoint, what's going on inside that small group interaction, you can't overstate how significant that is because people don't learn from experience. People don't learn from experience. I don't know about you, Dan, but I've had quite a few experiences in my life that I seem to have repeated and not learned from. I don't know if you can relate to that. (laughs) And they don't learn from experience. If you look at experiential learning theory, they actually learn by going through a sequence of two or three or four steps. And this whole activity that we're just making up here that we're talking out loud honors exactly what the science says. What the science says is you learn by reflecting on past experience and then by conceptualizing those reflections. What does that mean? What it means is, when was the time that I was around someone who was good at connecting? And what did they do that made them good at it? That's literally honoring exactly how we learn. 
And now you're on fire in terms of, are we really learning something right now? And people Hmm. are so much more engaged listening to somebody saying, here's how to go do that yourself. So I love that. How about John, something as simple as before an event starts, how are the ways that you create engagement or prime the group before the event starts in the maybe 15 or 20 minutes prior to the start time? Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is clearly we're doing all this online and everything I'm going to say, I think there's an important disclaimer is even though I'm going to say, well, here's how you can do it online. Everything we do online and most of the things we do online to prime people are things we learn by looking at what we used to do in person. So there's some beautiful design principle questions. These are just great creative questions for a lot of businesses that we began asking when COVID got here, which was, what's everything that was awesome in person that we could figure out how to duplicate or make even better online? And then the other primary question was, what are all the things we weren't able to do that we could now do online? You know, and those, both of those led to all sorts of really cool realizations. Well, if you think about when you used to get together in person, a lot of the important connection happened during the 20, 30 minutes before the quote unquote meeting started, right? We know that. Mm -hmm. And when people walked into a room, they can't walk into a room that doesn't have music playing. We all know that, right? And when they walk in, if you're really sharp, they're greeted at the door by somebody. And by the way, you can do that in digital meetings. Yeah. When they come in, they come to one place where they're greeted in a certain way before they get brought into a different place. There's so many creative things that you can replicate or make better. And so I'm already revealing some examples, but I'll give you an example. Our own three-day flagship training that we run once every three months right now, that flagship training is a six-hour training. And for the 30 minutes before the live six-hour thing starts, we have an optional connection time. And when people show up for optional connection time, they click on a Zoom link. It brings them into a Zoom room. Now, we use the waiting room feature so that we can greet them as best as possible one at a time or a few people at a time. There's more advanced ways to do this where even with dozens or hundreds of people coming to a training, you can actually configure it so that they're all coming in and talking to a person one-to-one before they're coming into the larger group, which is cool. But our trainings right now where we've got on average is between 80 and 100 people come to each training. That number's growing quite a bit for the next one. But uh, they click the link. They come for a 10.30 a.m. training. They're showing up around 10 a.m. They're greeted and, and we do a real quick tech check. But we don't do the tech check in the boring way. Like, hey, does your sound work and does your video work? We actually sneak the tech check in where they don't even know that's what we're doing. But in a way that actually creates play in the first 30 seconds. So an example would be, you know, instead of uh, asking people if their camera is on, we say, hey, if you've got your workbook in front of you, hold it up so we can see it, (laughs) which actually does two things. It makes them turn their camera on and it tells them they got to get their workbook and then we'll have fun. You know, we'll say, hey, if you can hear me, why don't you come on unmute and say hello, tell me where you're zooming in from, you know, instead of saying, let's see if your stuff works you actually have useful interactions to accomplish your tech checks. But then the other thing that we'll do, and this gets really more significant in terms of how we greet people, is when they come in, we immediately, we say, hey, if you showed up early, we're gonna drop you into a small group breakout with two or three other people. Now, I understand I'm about to share something that some trainers would be afraid to do for understandable reason, and there's a way to mitigate the risk, 
is you put members of your leadership team in all these small breakout rooms. And now when people show up early, you drop them into a small room with two or three, four people where they can get to know each other in a lightly guided or unguided way. But you can put, you know, assistant managers in those rooms, right? And they're in there for 15, 20 minutes, just getting comfortable before you bring them back and start the main event. Uh, That's a, a simple, simple example of something you can do for people to get comfortable before the main event starts. There's one last idea. A lot of what I've been sharing is probably obvious for a lot of your listeners, especially from the vector world, because I know how innovative they are on in-person meetings. One of the big ahas for us that maybe is less obvious for some is that if we want to create a certain culture in how we gather digitally, the meeting doesn't begin when people show up. The meeting and the culture of that meeting begins the moment somebody reads the invitation to that meeting or the moment they are invited to that meeting. And the way we invite and what we say and how we invite people and what kinds of guidelines we lay out the moment somebody is invited to something, that's where we have some of the most important influence on what happens when they show up. So for example, when COVID got here, we noticed we, we were running all these meetings and you have half the people show up with their cameras, half without, which is almost demoralizing if you're running the meeting because it's like you have no idea if they're actually there. I saw some research recently that, I mean, the percentage of people that are doing other things, it would cause a lot of us to question if we should even be running the meetings. It's, it is demoralizing, right? And I think we all knew that intuitively. We knew it because we ourselves were doing it at times. And so we realized, well, we have to take a stand. And if we really believe we're going to do something important, then we got to create a culture around how we're going to show up. And we have to create an agreement before they show up. You can't ask people to turn on their camera if they didn't agree to it before they came. That's inappropriate, right? So what we developed were a set of guidelines. We called it our participation for agreement, where a lot of our meetings and meetings that we design and run for clients and that our facilitators are now leading, what we do is we let people know in advance, hey, in this new world of meeting digitally, We've realized how many of these digital meetings are still a waste of time, (laughs) and we want to stand for these being an extraordinary use of time. And so we lovingly ask that you be able to agree to some basic expectations, and we call it our participation for agreement. If there's any reason you can't meet these, let us know, and we can make one-off decisions as to if and how we can accommodate you. Because we still want to be respectful if they don't have the uh, technology bandwidth to keep their camera on. There's other personal cultural reasons that they can't engage the way we want, but we're still making the point. The large majority of you, 99%, it's often the case, 100% of our meetings, 100% of the attendees meet all four of our asks. I don't even remember what our asks are because these just get sent out. I don't see them anymore, but it's things like you agree to have your camera on and your audio ready to work. That's obvious. You agree to be stationary and not moving. That's a distraction and a disrespect to trying to do things where we really need to be fully present. You can be standing, but for a lot of the types of meetings we're running, you can't have people walking and running. There are certain meetings where that's perfectly fine, not a lot of the trainings. And then number three is that for a lot of our gatherings, we will ask that you agree that you're there from beginning to end. This isn't something where you pop in and out. And I will tell you, there are many meetings where we have people who respond to those rules and they say, thank you for sending this. And I'm I'm not going to be attending because I can't be there the whole time. And that's perfect. That's what we need. Now, might we make an exception here? There may be. But that's what we need. 
Because if you're trying to have a cohesive experience where people are connecting in and out of these small groups, I mean, if you're just running a webinar where someone's passively talking, none of this stuff matters. And those aren't the kinds of events we really have much interest in designing, leading, or participating in. But if you're trying to lead an integrated, fully human, connected, engaging experience, that's what we want and what we do, then people need to agree on these things. There's a saying that we use, and I'll finish with this, Dan. You cannot be inclusive without being exclusive. And -hmm. in our world, that means you can't run this connected, engaging, fully present experience without excluding the people who aren't really able or ready to do that. So you asked about what do you do kind of before the meeting starts? Well, this is like the way before it starts to just set the container so people show up with the right kind of expectations. I hope that was uh, useful or of interest. Yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. I definitely see how having small group breakouts is one way of creating connection. What else do you do to help make sure that the participants are connected to each other and maybe even that the participants are connected to the host? Yeah, so a few things here. I mean, I can get very technical really quickly. For example, when people come into our Zoom room, like if it's a 5 p.m. meeting and we're going to let everybody in at 4.55 as an example. We have everybody muted when they come in because I have music playing in the background. I would do it here, but I, with your, if you don't have the right licenses, it gets your episode in trouble. But I have a digital setup. It's not super expensive, but I am like a DJ right now. I could play anything instantly and I could, I could fade it in and out and it's beautiful. So we use music. So when people come in, everyone is muted. I got music coming in. And one of the things that I do is I, I say every person's name that I possibly can before we start. I say, hey, Dan, James, Jimmy, Jerry, uh, Saida, Joshua, Monica. And I create as many connections that way as I can. And we're often running meetings with 50, 100, 200 people. I will sit there and say as many names as I can. Hey, John, super glad you're here today. What's going on? Dan, good to see you. I love that background. I might ask you about that later on. Saida, I see the families in the background. I'd love to be introduced if we get time. Hey, James, what are you drinking right there? Put that in the chat box. I'd love to know. And so I'm glimpsing into their lives, which by the way, it's a classic example of what you can't do when you're in person. I might see artwork and I'll make little notes. We have tracking sheets where we make notes of things we might call out or people we might call out later on in a gathering. Because if you start operating with that kind of presence and awareness as a facilitator, your audience starts to have a, oh shit, I can't just hide on this Zoom. You know, when they see that I'll start calling people out, they realize he might call me out. Hmm. And I'll, I'll say, hey, good to see you. And so they realize, so it now sets this unconscious conditioning of, he's really actually looking at me or us. He's not just going through the motions. And then from there, if we're staying really tactical, We start everything. Now, this may or may not make sense depending on the gathering, but for us, it's a global audience. Everything we do. Hey, let's do our check check real quick. Everyone put in the chat box, where are you zooming in from? And then I read it off real quickly. Oh, look at that. Cupertino, Santa Clara. Oh, you're coming in from Southern California, Montana. Awesome. Oh, Hawaii, Northwest. Cool. Super cool. And the reason I'm doing that is by, by acknowledging what they put in the chat, they realize, oh, when he asks us to put something in the chat, he or his team are going to look at it. Mm -hmm. That has a consequence later on. Hey, how many of you have the handout? Hold it up if you do. And if you don't, no worries. Here's the link in the chat. If you have one last chance to print it out or download it on your iPad. 
Okay, one last tech check here. On the count of three, all of you unmute and say hello. Great. Oh, wait, there's one more tech check. Do all of you know how to raise your digital hand? This is one of the most important tech checks. Because before people have courage to raise their digital hand, they need to know how to do it technologically. A lot of people won't raise their hand and speak because they're actually afraid of knowing which buttons to push to do it. So we say, everybody raise your digital hand right now. The way you do it is you look at the bottom of your Zoom bar, click on reactions, and then click on raise hand, not one of the other four icons. All right, let's see if you all figured it out. And by the way, our team is watching. And if they notice that any of you are struggling, send them a private Zoom chat and Nick or Jana will help you out right now. And literally, there's always someone who hasn't upgraded their Zoom or they can't find it and our team resolves it. But if we don't make sure that everybody knows how to unmute and then mute again, raise their hand, lower their hand. This sounds like, why do you still have to do this in today's world? Well, you just never know who's on your Zoom. And even if they know how to do it, you want to get them present and conditioned to follow your instructions as a facilitator. So you'd ask, Dan, how do we engage? These are very, very simple, tactical, but we would also say critical little things. And you notice my tempo speeds up as I get into like role-playing mode. It's because, let me say this. I've heard this phrase, Zoom fatigue. There's no such thing as Zoom fatigue. It's called shitty meeting fatigue. It's called shitty facilitation fatigue, right? That's what it is. Zoom is not the problem. It's guiding people in a way that keeps them captive, engaged, having a good time, and having a learning full time. And so part of why my tempo speeds up is because masterful facilitation is really about energy management and attention management. Mm. And there are key points where knowing how to get everyone moving and ready and dialed in really matters. I'll tell you one other thing, Dan, that I think makes a big difference in one. And this is a start. This has nothing to do with connecting online, but it sure as heck can help everywhere. I think when I'm in a breakout room with one other person or three people or a large group with a lot more, I really deeply believe that so much of what affects the quality of the connection that you and I have, it really has everything to do with what's going on inside of me. How do I navigate my own inner being so that when we drop into this Zoom room and you look at me, whatever's coming through my eyes, whatever's coming through my face, whatever's coming through my body, before I start talking, that immediately tilts the trajectory of what goes on. I think the energetic presence inside of us and how that gets reflected out has an even bigger difference the smaller the group is. I'd encourage everybody, before you drop into any small group, ask yourself, what is the highest service to that group, the highest service in terms of what's going on inside of you? And oftentimes it comes back to the same qualities. It's a true, genuine care for the other. It's an authentic curiosity that comes only from a place of real humility. It's an interest in listening as much as I am in talking, which I'm not really modeling that, but you're asking me these questions. It's a willingness to be influenced as much as I want to influence you. There's incredible research that actually says groups and teams that have a healthier balance of curiosity versus I'm here to convince. Literally, that's a leading indicator of a higher performing group. Are we actually genuinely curious about the other, where you're coming from, why you're saying what you're saying, what's behind it? So these are the invisible ingredients that I'm of the opinion have a bigger impact than all the above the surface techniques when it comes to conversations. Super powerful, John. 
you've talked a lot about how events can create community during the time that the event is being run. How about how do you nurture that community over time after a given event? Mm, yeah. Well, I know that you're aware that I, I, I really enjoy, I appreciate any question about community because as I've told you, that's been one of the big you know, learnings for me and for our organization at Exchange over the last year is understanding that the spirit and the sense of community, first of all, what is it? What does it mean? But even more importantly, why it is that it's actually, it's kind of that medicine that the whole world needs right now, even if we don't know it. And the pandemic certainly magnified that need. What we have found is that what people need more than anything is to feel like they can belong. And what I could start with is this. Every time a person walks into a room, online or on site, doesn't matter what the setting is, we're all asking some version of this question, can I be myself and fit in? And you know, one of the things I've learned in the last year as a white male is how many things I take for granted. One of the things I've learned is how many times I don't really have to worry too much about that question, whereas someone else in the same room does, and I didn't even realize it, and how much I probably need to rethink the things I say and do as a facilitator, as a leader, to honor that there are people who face struggles that I never can and never will fully relate to, but I can try and understand. That's a question everyone's asking. Whether we're a homogenous group or a mixed group is, can I be myself and fit in here? And I appreciate that Cutco was a culture and environment for me, where 22 years ago, at a time where I was struggling, it was a place where it didn't necessarily matter what my past was. It didn't necessarily matter what my education level was or where I came from. Those things might have an influence, but those weren't really what mattered most. What mattered most was that Cutco was a culture where whoever you were, you could be yourself, apply yourself, and make something happen. Didn't mean it was easy, but I was able to fit in. I was able to feel safe for the first time in my life as a part of the Cutco culture. And that's become more clear to me as I've gotten a little bit older. That's one component of community. And as a facilitator, teacher, trainer, coach, there's a lot of things that we can do to enable people to feel safe in these groups and group environments. But hear this, there's a lot of things we can do and not realize it to undermine that safety. Comments Ooh. that we think are funny and we don't realize that we've just alienated somebody else or triggered somebody else because of things that we don't really understand culturally. I've learned the hard way you got to learn how to create it and also what undermines it. From our lens, there's two simple things that lead to safety. And I, this is an oversimplification. There's a lot of nuance around this, but here's something very practical. Number one, the equality at which the voices of any group are invited in is a primary indicator to whether or not people feel safe. That's why when we teach facilitators how to facilitate group dynamics, it doesn't matter if it's an executive team or a sales training, when it's time for people to have small group interactions or to bring voices in, there has to be careful attention to how much time everybody gets to speak and how you give directions and instructions so that that is honored. Because if it's not, the default, unfortunately, especially in the United States, because other countries don't have the problem that we do, we are not great at creating an equal space for voices to come in. The loud, more extroverted folks in our country will come in 
and crowd out others. And that's a problem. So number one is equality at which voices are brought in. And it's not only, hey, when you're in your small group, make sure everybody gets about a minute to share, make sure everybody's heard. It's not only that, but it's also over time with a large group paying very close attention to, you know, we've been here a couple hours or a couple days or months, and we haven't heard a lot from this person or those people. Pay attention to that. And then think about how do I invite their voices in a thoughtful way that'll work because that's important for them to feel safe. Number two is, so equality at which voices are brought in. The second condition is, do people feel safe taking risks? Do they feel safe taking risks? Sometimes when people hear us talk about safety, they misunderstand. They think, ah, safety, shit. Does that mean we're all supposed to be nice to each other? Not at all. In fact, the teams and organizations that we've worked with that have the greatest levels of safety, they're everything but nice to each other. They have the conditions where people can say what they want when they need to. And that's really important because as Susan Scott says, every problem in business and in personal relationships mostly boils down to we don't feel comfortable saying what we want to say when it needs to be said. So taking a risk doesn't mean safety doesn't mean being nice. The conditions where people feel safe taking risks means people feel safe speaking up, not just when it's easy, but also when it's not easy. And so as a facilitator or a trainer doing a training or a facilitation or or a CEO leading their executive team, here's a simple practical thing, is when people speak, and, and there's a whole set of techniques on how do you make them comfortable raising their hand, we've touched on a couple, but once you get them to raise their hand and they speak, Make sure they are sincerely acknowledged every time somebody speaks. Hey, Dan, thank you for sharing that. Hey, Susie, thanks for speaking up. Hey, Tommy, thanks for adding that in. You know, you can have a hundred different ways of saying the same thing. Thank you for sharing. And that might sound obvious, but you want to acknowledge people. And it's especially important to acknowledge when somebody says something that's off the wall or looks like it's not supportive. Hey, thank you for being willing to bring your voice in. So that we're, be- we're helping people to feel good about speaking up. People need to feel safe taking risks, acknowledging when they take a risks. And by the way, when somebody speaks up and it is confrontational or it's confronting to the moment in front of a group, I as a facilitator cherish that moment because I know that that's a rare moment where everybody else knows this is not the script. This is not the guy doing everything as though he had it planned. So when something right. goes quote unquote wrong, because somebody speaks up and says something or challenges me or challenges the process or what's going on or confronts something or somebody else, I cherish those moments as a facilitator because I've done enough of the inner work, hopefully, that I'll be able to respond in a way that shows that we respect all voices here. And I also know that in those moments in group settings where somebody says something that clearly was not the company line or part of the plan, that's when everybody else is deciding what they really think of me, not when everything goes according to plan. That's when they're figuring out what's really up with John. So that's confronting to some people who think what makes me great as a leader or a teacher is everything coming off so perfectly and so smoothly. I think in some cases the opposite is true. Let people see shit go wrong, see how you react to it so they can feel comfortable when things go wrong for them. Man, that was great. You know, when you were talking about when things go off the script from somebody who's sharing some kind of feedback in a group, I'm just reminded of something I learned from Adam Grant, which is the idea that weak minds attack the messenger because they see problems as a threat to their ego 
Whereas strong minds appreciate the messenger because they see problems as threat to their mission. And so they want people to be willing to bring feedback. And I think that's a great point as well. If anyone's hearing this going, oh shit, this does sound important. How do we do it? Here's the good news. Everything we've been talking about is engineered to enable people to feel safe. Peter Block, Mm -hmm. who literally wrote the book on community, the subtitle of his book is called The Structure of Belonging. And one of the things that I had the privilege of learning from Peter is that the fastest way for people to feel safe, to feel seen and heard, is in a small group conversation. So the good news is if you're listening, everything we talked about earlier has been designed by taking the best teachings from the best teachers on all of this stuff and to make it happen whether or not we realize everything that's going on. So people need to feel safe to optimize their learning. But there's one more component to this, which is it's not just about can I belong as myself, but it's also what do I belong to here? And that's the other thing that Vector has had figured out long before I was around, Dan, and I know you get this, and that is your Vector isn't about selling knives. It says it right behind you. It's the thing above your head. It's about changing lives, right? That's a, tra- that's a bigger purpose than selling knives. And Vector's been clear on that forever. You know, you create these opportunities for young people to go do something to change their lives, whether or not they continue selling knives. That's an example of what is the bigger thing that we are up to around here? And whatever business any of us is in, we have to learn how to to have that conversation and invite people into it so they can realize, well, that's something I want to be a part of too, right? And last thing on that, the degree to which a participant of a learning experience or a team, the degree to which they feel connected to that bigger purpose the degree to which they buy into and actually believe that what we're doing here is bigger than just this is in direct relationship to how sincerely and deeply you as the teacher, I as the facilitator, believe it myself. To whatever extent, I really believe that us selling knives is such an important service to this world. Others will feel that. But if I'm saying it and I'm not totally bought in, they're going to feel that too. John, you just you covered so much right there from an understanding of what are we up to around here and having that conviction inside first as the leader, as the person running an event. How do you communicate what we're up to around here in a way that helps people feel a part of it? Creating the feeling of safety, which you do naturally just by having small group breakouts and greeting people by name and welcoming everybody in and all those things. And just the whole package of what you've shared here, I think is just such a great tool for people to run an event that creates connection, engagement, and builds that community over time. John, in your view, what does the future of work look like in terms of how we gather? Well, that's a big question that I'm certainly curious about. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are too. And frankly, anybody who's listening to this, I have this temptation to wish there's some cookie cutter answer to, you know, like I can only guess in your world, it's like you were doing everything online. Well, now which things do we do online and what do we do in person? We got interviews, we got training, we got team meetings, division meetings, where, how do you sort that out? And there's a temptation, and it's biological, to want to rush to get that answer really fast. But the truth is, like a lot of other things, 
we're going to have to sort it out together and we're going to, it's going to be iterative. It's going to be messy. And we got it in the solution to these things that are messy where no one person has the answers. We have to learn once again, how to tap collective intelligence. I just think about your organization. I don't know. I, I really don't know how you all are handling this, but it's almost more important now than it was when you all went online that you are cohesive across the whole organization in spreading learning frequently. What are we accelerating the rate at which you are innovating and testing and messing it up? So how we go about it is what I'm most interested in. I don't think I have any idea what the answers are. I mean, there's a couple. I think for one around the future in our domain where we spend all of our time, I think this idea of how we run group events, we all know we have to rethink what we do in person because we've all realized what we can do when we're not in person. And so it makes no sense to just do it the way we used to. People aren't really going to tolerate that. Like the idea that we're going to get together in person and spend the majority of the time giving speeches, passively sharing information. Like you can't spend all that money when you you could passively convey something online. And even then, how are we approaching that? Because you're not going to keep people's attention because they'll say, why didn't you just send me the recording? Why do I have to be here live for something you should? It's almost disrespectful to ask people for their time live and just talk at them. Think about that for a minute. We stopped Mm -hmm. watching TV that way 20 years ago. Why would we ask people to show up to something that way live today? That's going to be obsolete very quickly. We're already seeing it. We work with the heads of major conferences, global movements. We're seeing a rapid accelerated decline in people attending something if there's not legitimate connection with other people and engagement because they they just, they're not going to tolerate it. Right. Not in the Netflix age. Right. So we have to rethink how we do spend time in person. It doesn't mean we don't have great content. It's not the point. It doesn't mean we don't have important teachers teaching. It means we rethink how do we leverage what we can do in person that you just couldn't do the same way online, which is how you connect people together, right? Because we can connect online, but wow, the depth of what that leads to in person is something you, you can't replace. And I think that when you ask about the future, Dan, I think there's two things that we're already seeing. Like the, the future is now, or frankly, it was a couple months ago for us. We are already leading events that are what people call a hybrid event, where you have some people in person and some people online. And we've been very fortunate that we've had the chance to start experimenting with this. But I think a big question people are going to need to ask is, if we're going to create access to an in-person gathering, we're going to give access to a remote gathering, what do we want that to look and feel like? Are we just going to stream stuff to them? Because that's almost just a step backwards into the stone ages of how we ran meetings, right? Like, if you want to figure that out, you don't need to listen to this podcast. That's pretty easy. But do we want to figure out how to integrate and involve that remote audience with the in-person audience where they not only feel like they are one group, but actually the existence of both audiences amplifies each other's experience? That's not the question a lot of meeting planners are asking today. I know this because we talked to them. Today, they're asking, how do we have two audiences that don't get in the way of each other? That's an unfortunate question. (laughs) Hmm. The question we like to ask is, how do you actually have dual audiences amplify each other, make each other's experience better? We found ways to do that. So the very questions we ask about the future are going to determine the kinds of innovations we create. And the unfortunate thing is when these questions are unconscious and they have no chance other than to send us back to the stone ages of how we lead meetings. 
There's one other big question about the future, Dan, and that is, and I'm focusing on this on the area that I know you and Cutco are in that I'm in where we have commonality, which is just large group conferences and trainings and retreats and meetings. And that is, and we're doing this right now, what we're seeing is before the pandemic, we used to think of an in-person event as this thing that was constrained by time and space. Obviously, we've got four walls of this hotel. We fly in on this day. We leave on this day. We can only fit this many people. We're going to get this much done. That makes sense. What we've all learned in the last year is that there are some incredible things that are possible online. And so because of that, here's what we're seeing in the most innovative event planners in the world. And we're very fortunate that we've gotten to learn from the heads of the biggest gathering movements that are out there. And we learn way more from them than they're getting from us. And what we are seeing that they have figured out is they are no longer viewing an event anything close to how we used to view an event. They are no longer viewing an event as something that's limited by time and space. They are now viewing, in fact, the word event itself is evaporating the way they talk about it. Because instead of seeing it as this thing where we put all these resources in and then we got this rare moment in time where we make it happen and then they drive away or fly away, what we're realizing is we should stop thinking about that moment in time in isolation. We should think instead about who we're serving and how can that in-person event maybe be a, a pinnacle or a climax, but leading up to it, there's things we do virtually, digitally to get people primed and connected and feeling safe and ready and excited. So when they get to the in-person gathering, like here's a real world example. We have a company that we've helped do large group strategic planning. So four years ago, we put 300 people in a room for three days. And from a blank canvas on day one, we walk out on day three, we got this big strategic plan. That's exciting and it's cool. Well, that same company, we're in the design phases for them putting the same 300 people back in a room in February with a big difference. We've now designed multiple 60 to 90 minute gatherings for several months leading up to that gathering where we're going to share learning. We're going to connect people to each other. We're going to facilitate all sorts of thoughtful interactions. So when they get there on day one, they feel the kind of safety, connection, and excitement that often they never felt until the minute the three-day event ended. And so what we're seeing from the most creative event planners out there is this diminishment of time and space because we're not thinking about an event. That's just a component of the lifespan of our relationship with these folks. What's everything we're going to do before to build momentum? And then here's a cool question. What's everything we're going to do after to maintain momentum? And obviously, a lot of that can happen online, right? Yeah. And then, of course, the other question is, so what we've just done is we've just taken the dimension of time and we've blown it up. And we've realized we should no longer think about an event as a moment in time, but as a component across the span of our relationship with whoever we're serving. But space evaporates as well. Mm. Because while we're there in person, and this is the more obvious dimension, while we're there in person, something important's happening, well... It doesn't have to just be those 200 people. There could be 2,000 people watching. And here's an interesting thought. Realizing that we could stream people in at key moments, maybe it's not a, they either stream for the whole thing or they don't. Maybe there's certain groups that just stream in for certain parts. We have one conference we're designing right now where it's three days in person, but there's only several hours where thousands of people are going to stream in because of what's happening. 
in one of those activities, it's a different group of people streaming in. So when you remove the dimension of space or access, you can get really creative, not on who's streaming in as a participant, but as a speaker. Think about before COVID, it's like, well, the only people who are going to teach is whoever's going to be in the room. No, like whoever's going to teach is whoever can click a link. <laughs> yeah. And that, get, that makes things exciting too. Yeah. I'm hearing some great ideas about just the promotion of an event and the preparation, the lead up to an event that can put people into the right frame of mind and heart before they even get there. Post-event activities that can happen that sort of continue to foster the community that was created. So many things about how you can integrate a live event into the overall package of developing and working with your organization that you've shared. So much great stuff, John. Listen, if people want to be able to learn more about Exchange and what you're doing, how can they follow you? Every month right now, we're leading a couple of workshops. One of them, I don't even know how you sign up for it. So (laughs) we'll figure that out. But every month we lead a, a workshop where we introduce our approach, our facilitation approach experientially. And to sign up for that, I think you go to Xchange, the letter X, the word change, approach.com forward slash, let's say, uh, knives, let's call it knives. That way, if it's comes from this podcast, we can keep track of that. Right. And there's another workshop Send my royalty check to, Oh, just kidding. (laughs) Sure. There's another workshop we're leading right now to introduce people to our work on awakening conscious leadership, which is the intersection of neuroscience and mindfulness to convert stress into intuition and creativity. If they go to the same link, we'll set it up so they can find that workshop. So, and uh, if someone wants to talk to us, uh, they could send an email to hello at exchangeapproach.com and our team will see that and we'll be glad to respond. Sounds great, John. This has been really cool. So much good stuff that you have offered. I really appreciate it. I just appreciate the chance, Dan. You sent me a note the other day and uh, the topic and we were able to squeeze this in and If this serves anybody in the Cutco Vector community, that means the world to me because that community and that organization has given so much to me and you and so many of our friends. So if it helps anybody at all, that's awesome. Deeply appreciate the chat, Dan. Excellent. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, man, there was so much to unpack in that conversation with John Berghoff from considering how we define what we are building, how we promote what we are building within our organization so that people want to be a part of something, how we show up at every event, whether virtual or live, the focus on each individual who is there, and the ways in which we can provide value for others. The word I want to have you consider for today is the word reflect. Take some time to reflect on what you just got, the gifts you just received from John Berghoff. A few things you might consider, right? When was a time when you attended a great event online? And what happened, right? What happened? What made it great? What did you learn from that experience? Consider those things, reflect on it. Another one is, When is a time or a group in your life with which you felt a great feeling of belonging, right? What is a group in your life with which you have felt a great feeling of belonging? How did that 
develop? And what can you implement from that to help people in your life feel a feeling of belonging, groups that you're running? How can you implement some of those same concepts? I'd love for you to reflect on those two questions. I'd love for you to tell me what some of your ideas are. I would really love to get feedback from you. You can go to changinglivespodcast.com. You can post feedback to this episode in the comments. You can email me, danc at cutco.com with your feedback. I would love to hear it. When I think about the balance of in-person and live events as it pertains specifically to people in Cutco Vector, what comes to my mind is the concept we all know called the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of our people create 80% of our results. And those 20% of our people should be people that we're investing additional time and effort into in an in-person setting. And so, for example, it makes a whole lot of sense to run all of our recruiting online. It makes a lot of sense to run the vast majority of our training online. Every time that we're teaching different settings, a lot of that being done online. But once a rep has sold, say, 6000 bucks, it sure makes a lot of sense for the manager to meet that person and to then create a cadence at which you are continuing to meet with that person, whether it be one-on-one or in small group settings like a key staff meeting. Maybe it's every week, maybe it's every two weeks, maybe it's once a month. It's probably not outside of those windows though. And so making sure that that cadence is established and that in-person activity is conducted. And at a higher level in the business as a division manager, meeting and spending time with our district manager team, our TLA, right? These are things that should be blended between online and live with some regular cadence as well. Listen, if you want to learn more about John Berghoff and what he teaches, he referenced exchangeapproach.com, X, and then the word change, the letter X, and then the word change, approach.com. Put in there forward slash knives if you can. So John knows you heard about this through this podcast. That would be cool. I always love to be a support for John and what he is doing. And you can also reach out to me at danc at cutco.com. I know this has been a long episode, everybody, and I hope you've gotten a ton of value out of it. I trust that this has been well worth your time and I appreciate your support of the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 